Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and my co-host has influenced how I manage group work in my classroom. And I'm Michael Ralph, and my co-host has influenced me to be more precise with my use of language. Professional growth involves ongoing reflection and dialogue. So grab a seat and join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking Alchemy Coffee Stout from the Martin City Brewery Company. I'm excited because I drink Alchemy's coffee pretty regularly because they have a couple of locations down in Lawrence and I'm very fond of their coffee so I'm pretty excited to try their beer product. Oh, the coffee house is independent but collaborating with the brewery. Yeah. Oh, I see. This is not just a fancy name. Yeah, Alchemy is the name of the... That's that's them. Yeah, yeah. Welcome back for another month. We are excited to talk about social influences within a school and how it might impact our classroom. Later on, we're going to play with a brand new non-sequitur, and then we have a guest joining us, Matthew Moore, is going to come tell us more about how digital literacy impacts his classroom. So let's get started. The paper for our first segment comes from Mind, Brain, and Education, and it's called The Influence of Social Contagion Within Education, a Motivational Perspective, and that is by Burgess, Riddle, Fancourts, and Murayama, and that was published in 2018. Uh, this came across one of my uh, news feeds. I use Feedly to monitor the releases from a bunch of different journals, and this one caught my eye because uh, I really like talking about motivation, and I like thinking about how and why students decide to do different uh, different things and use different behaviors. And I think looking at school culture might be a nice way to kind of think about how do we fit into the larger picture um, that our classroom is a part of. So there's some background framework that we can touch briefly, but it, a lot of it is very um, intuitive in that we have friends and associates, and we influence each other. The question is, to what extent... Uh, are people hanging out because they are already similar and they like the same things? And then to what extent hanging out with each other causes them to become more similar and influencing each other? This has been studied in lots of different domains, and they cite some examples of it being studied in health and being studied in delinquency and delinquent behaviors. Uh, but now they are looking at it in terms of classrooms, which is, of course, why we care. <laughs> And so you might hear in there, there's some flavors of like peer influence and peer pressure that uh, have been more studied more thoroughly. You're looking at usage of smoking or vaping more currently, alcohol, drugs. And that, of course, has been well established. But all of those things are about conscious choices to influence our peers and our friends around us. And this subject was trying to get beyond those conscious interactions and get more to what's the, the subtle unconscious indicators and pushes and prods and promptings that we provide that shape how our friends and how our colleagues might interact with a subject or a discipline or might choose their behaviors. There was a really good example given early on in the paper about if you've got a circle of friends and one of them is highly active in science practice, are the rest of those friends in the group more likely to also be engaged in science extracurriculars or think about science topics more often? And the general answer is yes, not because that one person is evangelizing them necessarily, but because they are they are a part of that social network and they themselves make those choices, the others are also more likely to make those choices. So we want to know how and why does that happen? 
a sub theme that came up popping up in my head as I was reading this was generally this, uh, the way I framed it and rephrased it for myself was that enthusiasm spills over. And so if you're if you're close to someone who's enthusiastic about something, some of their enthusiasm is going to spill over to me. But since I'm not the wellspring of that enthusiasm, that might not spill over to my other friends because they're farther removed from that initial source of enthusiasm. And this has been uh, this this type of uh, influence has been measured directly in terms of studies regarding GPA and that the friends ones choose have a significant influence on the chooser's GPA, whether they engage directly with studying behaviors or not. So this doesn't have to be an active involvement. This is a consequence of these uh, association choices. Not unlike how I happen to know that you have several hobbies that I have adopted since we started becoming friends. Uh, that is true. And I know a lot more about baseball than I did before we met. <laughs> so... Choosing your friends in order to make good decisions is advice that we have been giving kids for as long as kids have existed. You shouldn't hang out with those kids. Why can't you have nice friends? We can shake our, we can wag our finger at our kids for those decisions all we want. But as practitioners, really, we're interested in how this concept, which they call uh, contagion, you know, the spreading of these behaviors and attitudes, how do we as teachers interact with this phenomena? So that's where we're going to find our shoulds in this paper. And what's really encouraging is they talk a little bit later in the paper about how teacher-student contagion also absolutely exists. We're not peers with our students, so the underlying mechanisms may not be the same, but there's absolutely plenty of evidence for con social contagion of different behaviors and different emotions between teachers and their students. And being aware of that can maybe help us leverage some of that to more effectively manage our classroom and more effectively encourage our students. The first example is one that's not going to shock anybody listening. If you've got a teacher who is enthusiastic and is compelling in how they're working with their material and how they're sharing that information with others, that is going to be more compelling for the students. Uh, but I loved that they referenced the uh, fundamental experiments that identified that because it's so fun. I want to, I want to do this kind of research. Uh, they talked about the Dr. Fox effect. What do you know about Dr. Fox? He is a fictional character played by an actor, and he was presenting to a audience that were experts in game theories, in game theory. And this actor didn't actually know anything about game theory other than a sort of a a casual citizen familiarity with it. And he was coached to present with some essentially gibberish and contradictions and obfuscations. The bottom line was that for, for uh, connecting with your audience, it was not what you say, it was how you say it. And that under all modifications, whether uh, they introduced him with uh, glowing credentials or they ignored his credentials, whether they were experts in the audience or there weren't experts in the audience. Whatever modifications they did to this test over time, the speaker was rated favorably. However, the problem was that in the initial study, they did not distinguish between rating the speaker favorably and learning something. Later, when they did multiple recreations of this, despite the attitude of the speaker and their manners and their likability, the audience didn't report having learned anything. 
a positive inter interaction and a positive relationship with our instructors leads to I'm more likely to be engaged, I'm more likely to be listening. Um, we know that even links with some of the previous like online learning research of like if I see a face and I feel connected with a person, then I'm more likely to be um, investing in the material and working on those cognitively difficult and taxing processes of sense making. And so understanding that the social interactions that I have with a, with a class and with the individual students in that class as we're working through material influences their ability and their willingness to engage with that material is a piece of all of this. It's a, yeah. If I approach this of, well, this is really annoying and this is really boring, but we have to do it, so let's get started. I have already immediately reduced the amount of productive um, learning that I'm going to get out of that interaction because the students see that and respond to that and say, if the teacher is disengaged, I too am going to disengage. And so we have to manage that. We have to, we have to reduce that. Even if I do feel that this is not what I want to be doing in this moment, but there's nothing that I can do about it. If I want to get the most out of my class time, I have to convey to the best of my ability the enthusiasm and investment that I want to get out of my students. And that's not just uh, extension of, of these findings. That's another measurement that they took. That when students were told that their teachers were volunteering to teach this particular lesson versus uh, when their teachers were being paid an extra stipend to teach this lesson, those students that were learning from the perceived volunteer had greater academic gains than the students that were in the classroom of the extra stipend compensation. So the enthusiasm and motivation of the teacher resulted in classroom consequences, uh, gains in their students. And so this is, this is that, you know, I, I don't do it all the time, but from time to time, I, I tell my kids that I, you know, I've got eight years of, uh, uh molecular biology laboratory experience and I could get their there are job openings that would pay $30,000 more than I'm making right now that I have the qualifications to have, but I don't want to do that because I want to be here with them. And that sincerity, you know, I I, some, I don't say it all the time. I, I, sometimes they bring it up about teachers not being paid enough or whatever. But when that comes up, embrace it and say, yeah, we don't, but we like being here and we like working with you because that's what we want to do. That will have gains in your classroom. And I think something that can be tricky, being uh, a rebellious spirit that I am, is the other half of that is if I'm trying to be you know, a, a company man. And so every, every nonsense edict and every, every philosophically flawed instruction that I'm required to, uh, to implement in my classroom, if I do that with the same gusto that I do the things that I most believe in, students are going to see through that also. So having to manage, um, we're going to do this thing and I am going to be honest with you that I am not all that in invested in this thing and that's going to have costs for how effective this thing is going to be. But I want to maintain my relationship of honesty and candor with you so that when I do want to get the most out of it, you will believe me. I think that we have to at least acknowledge that that's a, that's a part of this process because if we come across as disingenuous or if we come across as duplicitous, that's also a problem, right? So I'm not saying to artificially be the most enthusiastic um, implementer of everything regardless of how you feel about it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we have to be cognizant of when we allow students to understand that we are not as invested in something, they will respond to that. Uh, yeah, that also, I, I made a note about that, that this whole section hints at the importance of sincerity and that if I have 
honest expectations of this being important or worthwhile or resulting in gains, then I need to express those expectations consistently. And they will, as you said, read through me when I am not enthused about what it is that I have to do in my classroom for whatever external reason is put that in my plate, then I should expect them to match my valence. They're not going to be excited about it either, and I'm, I can't take it out on them that they're reading that from me. One way that I approached that in my classroom was there were times where there was some expectation of us, and I didn't like it. There were other things that I would have rather been doing, but I believed that it was my professional responsibility to comply with this particular expectation, and I told them that. I gave them that exact story was like, here's this thing we're going to do. And they're like, hey, Mr. Rob, this is kind of stupid though, right? And I was like, I don't know if it's stupid or not, but I'm a professional and we're here to do the things that are our job. This is our job. We need to do this as well as we can. Get started. Yeah. And that happened. Like that was how we approached that problem. So I like your I like your mission of sincerity because that, that was how I approached most of those issues. I didn't lie, I didn't lie to my students very often. Right. Uh, there's also some complex classroom technique kind of buried into this. If our attitudes are contagious, uh, one of the sub one of the things that they talked about in this was uh, mimicry and how to what extent mimicry plays a role in contagion and to what extent will it not? Well, we are social creatures that take cues from each other, and the body language of the teacher influences the body language of the students, and so. A smile, a raised eyebrow, a forward lean. We know that proximity matters too, so we can use our bodies to uh, signal things to our students, and we can scan our students to see those signals reflected back to us, which means the more engaged we are and aware of our physical presence in the classroom, the more we can use that to receive feedback from students about how the class is going and then how we can change the emotional dynamic in the classroom with our bodies. Mm -hmm. Like if teacher contagion is real, then just our presence can shape the classroom. And that's something to be, it's a complex interaction that we need to be mindful of. Mm -hmm. And it requires a, a pretty high um, emotional metacognition in the teacher to be able to modulate and control the emotions that we express. But this is something that was recommended to me by a mentor when I was still in my teacher training that uh, it was just, it was sort of said offhand if students will match your emotion. So if you want them to be excited, you need to be excited or vice versa. Even if it is artificial, they will respond to that and you can start that snowball rolling down the hill. And I've used that and it's been remarkably effective. If I want students to like get excited for a challenge or we've got a really rich experiment coming up and we got a, we got a lot to do, let's get going. Being able to be that, uh, that cheerleader, that actor of even if man, it's the fourth time I've done this today and I'm not particularly excited about this next class, but being able to express that and um, provide the initial seed of that excitement for my students has been really effective. And the opposite of that is also true. That's one of the primary ways that I manage my uh, assessment environments, where I want a quiet and focused and independently working environment. Managing, as students come in, conversations need to be quiet. We're focused. There's not a lot of social interaction here. If you're going to be in here, please sit down. Um, just managing how I deliver those initial instructions sets that tone. And I had very few direct instructions about what I wanted behavior to look like. Just setting the tone and then maintaining it, they all matched my expression patterns yeah. and it made it a lot easier to navigate the rest of the day. 
One of our colleagues, Stephen Young, has given advice that I've heard that was relevant to this. I hadn't contextualized it with this before, but if you're going to show a video in your classroom and you've seen it four times that day and you go to your desk and you put your feet up and you read a book while the video is showing, your kids are going to to pick up that this is not important, this is not a focus, and it doesn't really matter whether we watch this or not, and you're going to have fewer students paying attention. So if there is some kind of attention that you want them to pay, you need to be modeling the importance and interest in that particular experience if you expect them, well, not even if you expect, because no, it's not even if you expect. You need to model it because if you don't, your disinterest will become contagious. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the trick, which actually kind of feeds into the uh, the next point that I caught from this, and that is if our disinterest and our disengagement and our lack of enthusiasm is contagious, there are actually are there other problematic things that are contagious? And this study found that yes, there were. When teachers have a higher burnout rate, when they are exhausted, when they are worried, it turns out that gets transferred to their students. And this isn't just a students filling out a survey. I also feel worried. Oh no. my gosh. They, I knew you were going to love this because of the, the measurements that they took were beautiful. Yeah. They actually swabbed the saliva of students and measured the cortisol levels in their saliva. This is Directly. A, yeah. The neurotransmitter, they found them. The, the, the neurotransmitter that is associated with stress. So stressed out teachers change the biochemistry of their students. Uh, and so that's a big thing. And so we really need to consider that. We need to consider that. Um, stress teachers that have a lack of confidence and a lack of expressed competency will transfer that stress and that lack of confidence and that perception of competency or lack thereof to their students. And to me, this perfectly encapsulate and solves the full explanation for the first year teacher experience because they are constantly stressed, they constantly have a lack of confidence and they constantly are second guessing their competency Every single day I was. So what's going on? Even if they're doing everything right, their emotions about it and the stress they're going through in order to get to where they are is going to have a deleterious effect on their classroom. And that's direct. And we can save you some of the biology, but suffice it to say that cortisol directly shuts down and blocks your ability to execute learning behaviors. It turns it off in your brain. So they can't do it as effectively when it's present. And so I felt like this shed a whole new light on the perception of teachers taking personal personal days or mental health days, because I feel pretty strongly about that. There are a lot of teachers who kind of drag themselves in and say, man, I really, I just need a day to just catch up. Like my, my car crashed and I just got to get into the shop and my, my kids are sick and I wish somebody was taking care of them. And I just, I have this mountain of things weighing on me. And one day could make the difference. I could get I could get back on top of it and I could come back in, I could be refocused, but that's not an appropriate use of a sick day. So here I am and I'm gonna just grind it out and then we'll we'll deal with that when I get home. And that sort of approach I feel like can be countered by some validation of self-care matters. Yeah. It matters not just for reducing burnout, but it matters for effective classroom interactions. So hey, 
take that day and get it figured out so that you can be fully present when you're here so that we're not imparting that crossover stress to our students and we can have a more effective month because you can get out in front of these problems that are weighing you down. It's not just about us and taking care of us, which is plenty. That would be enough. But it's also about effectively providing a learning environment for our students. And I feel like that's kind of an underscore of like, even if the administration's focus is the experience of the students, here is the evidence right. that building that environment also demands self-care. That also kind of can inform behaviors from an administrator pre uh, pressure as well. If there's a classroom that's not working, how can we help the teacher... And how can we, what are the teacher's concerns? What are the teacher's source of anxieties? Uh, helping the teacher address their own perceptions of competency and where they feel they need to get support will have waterfall effects, cascading effects for that classroom. So we may say, you know what, their classroom will shape up when they fix this problem. But telling them about a problem that they didn't know they need to fix yet will add to their lack of competency. We're asking them, what do you need to work on and how can we make you feel better about that in your classroom? What is it that we need to address might lead to greater competency for everyone uh, as they work through those issues. But that's a proposition. We haven't seen that research. We're in this together. Our second segment's kind of a mixed bag. We got a lot of different things that we're trying to fit into this month because we have a lot of feedback and interaction from all of you. So the first segment or the first piece of a segment here is actually going to be responding to one of the one of you, one of the listeners out there who asked a question of us. Uh, Jesse, you posted a question uh, asking for more information and more resources related to Lawrence's comments in a recent episode about his early school days culture building activities. And so we want to, he has already posted a response on twopintplc.com, but uh, let's talk about it for a minute. My beginning of the year sequence, uh, before I get into content, because it takes me a bit of time before I get into content, is that first I do a lesson on public education and the importance of public education. I actually use, I start the school year with a video from um, John green who wrote an open letter to students returning to school you can find this video an open letter to students returning to school and uh i i, I kind of use that to model uh how i'm going to show videos in my classroom it's like a four minute video but it takes like 30 minutes to get through because i pause it every minute to really pull things out to discuss with the whole class but None of that is the point. The point is I want to show them my enthusiasm and sincerity for public education, that I am excited about public education. And one could make this a social studies lesson and say that these are objectives and I want them to know about the importance of public education. And we do discuss it, but that's not actually my goal. I'm really selling myself. I'm selling my sincerity and I'm selling my enthusiasm. So I didn't anticipate this this would uh, dovetail with our last segment, but it does. I'm there to sell enthusiasm day one, and we hit hard. Once that is done, then I go into some discussion of how our brains learn, how our brains take in information and make decisions about information and prioritize and store that information so that they can use it later. And uh, that takes a bit of time. And I... 
much of that discussion is influenced by a book called Make It Stick that is uh, written by McDaniel and Brown, I think, are the authors. And in that book, they have there's papers that have been cited. They talk about the brain, the neurology, and, and how all of these things fit together. And we discussed that with my class. But even that isn't really the heart of what I'm trying to go for. The heart of it is that we get better at what we do. And so if I want to improve my students' study habits, I not only have to teach them those study habits, but I have to give them opportunities to practice those study habits and provide feedback on those study habits. Their instincts to read through their notes, make flashcards, drill, cram, that's what's been working for them so far. So if I want them to practice something more nuanced, more effective, and a little more um, energy-intensive, I have to give them a space to practice it. So we practice these study habits in my classroom almost every day throughout the school year. It's the, it, If you want them to get better at something, that's what you got to use your class time to do. Give them the practice to do it. Thanks for asking. Yeah, thanks for chiming in, Jesse. You let us know... Uh... Why that was a yeah, dissatisfying answer. Yeah, how, can, how we can do this better. <laughs> Okay, the second small piece of this, I'm excited, and I know you're even more excited, is we got a question from Drew Ising. You might remember him from a past episode. I think it was 015, if, I wanna, if I'm going to pick a number. So Drew actually sent us something. There was a claim made on the social medias, made by Mr. Diaz, and he claimed that teachers have 1,500 interactions, not including the classroom management interactions, every day. With six 50-minute class periods, that's just my numbers, with six with six 50-minute class periods in a day, that would break down to a unique interaction every 12 seconds. Drew asked me what the research said out there, and I went looking, Drew. I, I promise you, I went looking, mm-hmm. and I could not find it. Because uh, that means so many different things. So in the show notes, I showed um, a paper that demonstrated how widely the frequency of those interactions can vary. Um, so we don't have a really good answer to this question. So now, it is the glorious return of the non sequitur. Uh, so, Lawrence, you buy it? Yeah, I do. I do, and I think it's easy to defend in light of the teacher contagion argument we heard earlier this day. Even our passive body language is consistently influencing our students. So if you just count body language, eyebrows, looks, teacher proximity, pointing, writing something on the board, asking a question, answering a question, shifting, looking pensive up in the corner as you feign concentration on an idea because you want them to concentrate on that idea, looking at the clock, directing all their attention to the clock, uh, asking them questions, watching them to make sure that they are engaged and then deciding how you're going to engage. Just modeling the intensity that you have for the classroom is communicating to them in the classroom that you care and what they do here matters. So your presence at all times constantly is sending signals to those students to influence how they act in the classroom. And so you are always on. You don't get a five-minute break in class. Even if you're asking them to engage with each other, you are still there to promote and foster that engagement. So I would say, yeah, I think every 12 seconds you're sending some kind of signal to students for sure. If you're a new listener, usually here I would have some sort of brief and insulting quip that is a sign of hubris because I feel confident and you're wrong about everything. So uh, 
this is all in good fun, and we have a we uh, we have a good time arguing. But uh, Woodruff, you are so wrong. I got to tell you why. <laughs> uh, first off, your definition of interaction is wrong, is incorrect, because interaction means to give and take on both sides of the party. And so, if really all of those more subtle interactions, especially uh, the nonverbals, I agree they're valuable. I agree they're important, and I agree that there are a jillion of them. But they are not interactions. They are observations, and I am sending signals. But I, the students are not intentionally giving me information. I am making observations about their behaviors. And so those don't count. They don't count as interactions. They're management techniques or their signals and their communication, but they are not interactions. So really, if we're talking about the true interactions in the classroom, if we are working effectively, it takes me a lot longer than 12 seconds to just fully understand any given student response. If it's over within 12 seconds, I should have been saying, tell me more. I should have been pressing for greater detail or more expounding on the particular comment they're making. And so really, if I am operating effectively and appropriately in the classroom, though I shouldn't be bouncing around that much. I should be interacting with my students for more than 12 seconds to fully explore each individual contribution. And so then during the instances where they're interacting with each other or they're having discussions amongst themselves or they're doing independent work as they're trying to do their retrieval or they're trying to make revisions to what they know, those instances I am certainly observing and I'm extracting information, but I am not interacting because the students should not be focusing on me. The students should be focusing on their work and what they know. And so I'm extracting observations and I'm making uh, inferences based on what I can get outside of a true interaction. Well, I, I appreciate that you've tried to change the game by changing the definition of interaction, but the definition, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is a reciprocal action or influence. When I send a signal to my students, I'm also watching them to see how they respond to that to inform my next behaviors to promote the cognitive development of my students. So you're right. If I am just sending signals and ignoring my classroom, you're right. But that's not what I'm doing. It's not what I'm proposing that we do. And I don't think that's what Mr. Diaz was proposing either. I think that we send signals to the classroom in order to see how they get pinged back to us. I don't think that the student intentionally sends signals and receives signals uniquely every 12 seconds. I think there are plenty of instances where they are having an interaction or exhibiting a behavior that I can get information from, but they didn't send me that information. And so that's not yet an interaction. That's an observation, an inference, and an intervention, but it is not an interaction. I guess we're going to have to let the listeners weigh in uh, and declare who has been the more persuasive in this particular disagreement. But thank you, Mr. Ising, for sending us this information. I am sorry we couldn't find definitive research, and I hope that you will weigh in and tell us uh, which side of this debate you fall in. This is better with all of you. Well, we're going to kick off our peer review again with a guest this month. We have Matthew Moore, who is an active high school teacher and an adjunct with Richland Community College in Decatur, Illinois. In his spare time, he works as a professional development trainer, a blogger, and a podcaster, primarily for his own amusement. We really appreciate you taking the time. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. 
Last month, you and I talked about uh, the myth of the digital native and the idea of multitasking, and we really wanted to get some other opinions from other educators who were regular users of technology. And so, Matthew Moore, you came forward as a regular user of flipped learning in your classroom, and we'd like to know more about uh, how you do that and how you make that effective for your students. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I, I am a flipped educator, which does mean that as a general rule, technology is very heavily used in my classroom and in my planning process. But what I really found interesting as I listened to your podcast, but also as I read some of the research that you guys brought up, I was really struck by how much a person kind of at one end of the technology spectrum and a person at the other end of the technology spectrum can stand on a common ground that this idea of digital native is silly. It kind of is silly because from my perspective, the more technology I put in my classroom, the more technology training I have to provide to students. I appreciate that you started the conversation that way because when uh, you were we were vetting you as a guest and looking at your things, I was like, man, he's on the way opposite end of this spectrum from me. We're not going to agree on anything. And then you kind of gave us an advanced copy of a, of a blog post that you were creating. And I was like, no, we got all kinds of common ground here. And I was pretty excited that uh, some a lot of the fundamental like philosophical approaches to good classroom teaching I was seeing reflected in your in your uh, your position. So I was like, yeah, we we're gonna have uh, things to say, and we're gonna we're gonna be able to uh, to come to a lot of common ground here. You sent us an article early on about the rate of research being done on flipped learning, and it's from a, a blogger who's posted this article for a couple of years now, but I really appreciated the professional approach. I found it really sound, robust methodology for counting the amount of research coming out on flipped learning. Can you tell us a little bit about how the, the landscape associated with flipped learning has changed over the course of the last five or 10 years? Well, that's a, that's a really great question because, you know, anytime you have a movement that's drawn out of someone's classroom. It's going to grow very slowly initially. And then as it catches fire, then people hop on a bandwagon, so to speak. And unfortunately, we don't really look at whether that bandwagon is terribly well-founded until it's well underway. Uh, the best thing about it, though, is when I uh, hopped on very reluctantly in 2012, there was very little research. But in the last five years in particular, the research has grown exponentially, so tightly exponentially, in fact, that I used it as an example in my classroom for exponential growth regressions. <laughs> nice. And, and the, the one thing that I like about Dr. Robert Talbert, and he's, he's the source of the article that I sent you, is he is in higher education. So he works more in academia than I do. Arguably, most high schools, as much as we'd like to think of ourselves as academics, high school just academics is a very loose term in the high schools versus in the college setting, they do a much better job of formalizing the academics. And Dr. Talbert, this is his real area, and he has been one of those leaders in research and one of those leaders, kind of the, the canary in the mind, so to speak, 
of what are the academics saying about this otherwise grassroots effort. And so that really has been a very valuable piece to the flipped learning community. One of the things that you wrote in the advanced copy of the blog post that you gave us was that flipped is a framework. The term flipped is not limited to relocating the elements of the traditional classroom, but inverting the placement of control and responsibility for learning by providing and making accessible a flexible framework. And I think that is spot on. We cannot do the learning. We as teachers cannot do the learning. We've got to empower our students with decision, responsibility, control, agency, influence, and choices so that they can take ownership of that learning. There are lots of ways to do that. Now, I prefer avoiding digital interfacing when doing that. As I move toward this technology enhanced, if you want to call it that, flipped learning model, if you want to call it that, is what you're flipping is not so much where instruction happens, but who's in charge of the learning. That idea of who is responsible for this learning, but not in a way that sometimes we traditionally hear about it where the teacher says, well, it's your learning, I can't learn it for you. So you guys have to do it and the teacher does nothing to support. Our job is to scaffold. Our job is to provide those tools so that the student can crawl up the ladder of their own learning. And so for me, technology makes sure that that is accessible 24-7 for the kid. And for me, technology is just a way to multiply myself. But in the end, my real goal is that I don't drive the learning. The student drives the learning. Students have access to different amounts of free time at home. They have access to different amounts of devices, different amounts of uh, information exchange resources. And so I'm really, I'm asking about equity here. How do you navigate different students who have different demands on their time and different uh, amounts of access or ease of usage for information technologies, computers, phones, whatever? Uh, how do you make sure that everybody has uh, an equitable opportunity to learn in a classroom? There, there are actually a lot of different answers to how do you get students access to technology? There are lots of answers on, but let's just go right to the heart of it and skip most of the questions. Who controls the due date? The teacher. Who controls when the material is released for the student? The teacher. Okay, so as a teacher, I can give that student more choice and more control over their learning by giving them the resources and the scaffolding well in advance of any time I wish it to be due. And because I control the due dates, I treat my class much more like Pokemon. Go catch them all. Because it doesn't matter where you find your education, it doesn't matter when you find your education, it is the flexibility that's provided by the technology. I will do a particular example for you an infinite number of times. I'll do it at 2 a.m. for you when you get done with your science, or I'll do it two days before, or because I'm a teacher that goes, you know, what's more important, my due date or the student learning? You can do it two days after it's due. I just want you to do it. And because I no longer, as a teacher, 
have to mark check marks, right or wrong, on a particular piece of paper at a particular time to keep my industrial workflow going. I have a computer that says, hey, they're at 20%. They need a kick in the pants. They're at 60%. They just need a little more time. They are at 100% three weeks in advance. I can go deal with that student individually to ensure that equity and access is provided because I have the electronic box that tells me my time isn't needed here, my time is needed over here. In that blog post that you wrote, you said that your relation, you were reconsidering your relationship to education research. Yes. And, and that made me feel warm and fuzzy. I just felt all kinds of love for that comment. Uh, and you kind of uh, wrote a statement that kind of personified your uh, sort of longstanding original perspective, which I don't think is that unusual or that rare. And the quote you used when you were describing that, that original perspective was that Piaget and Skinner and all were discussed in such theory without application to the universally industrial education model that to me, they became a representation of how disconnected higher learning was from daily practice. I, I mentioned, I said, I have a bias. And one thing about aging and one thing about teaching is that eventually all of your faults, foibles, and biases will be pointed out by 14-year-olds. And, <laughs> and they are pretty well experts in pointing out what we're bad at and where we fall short. And what I appreciate actually about this podcast was it pushed me over the edge to say, okay, I've made practical changes. I've made organizational changes. Have I really made the theoretical changes that I really probably ought to go back and look at? Should I confront my own bias? And I have my butt, my nerd buddy Ross, is my go-to research guy. And he says, well, it was about time. Because he read my pre-blog pre, pre and he goes, yeah, thanks for noticing. It's only been a couple of years since you've been doing this. So I, I, you mentioned that, you know, discourse and discord are actually really good points of a friendship. And it was, it kind of took this blog for him to say, yeah, I've been waiting on that one. Thanks, though. So, yes, I appreciate it. I think that is a critique of what we do in preparing teachers for the classroom is if we have theory, but it is so disconnected from implementation that it, that it gets viewed as obsolete or useless, then I think that is exactly equivalent to me presenting a biology textbook so disconnected from their real life yeah. that it is that irrelevant. It is obsolete or irrelevant. Like that is, that is an inappropriate implementation of that concept. Uh, it has to be relevant and appropriate. Hey, Matthew, we really appreciate you joining us. This has been a wonderful conversation. You really stretched both of our thinking on this topic. If we have listeners who want to consume more of your writing or they want to see more of your discussions of flipped learning, where can they look? Well, the first place you can look is at fliplearning.org. It's part of the Flip Learning Network. So fliplearning.org, I'm a regular contributor there. Have a, a blog post set and a radio podcast set there. But I also have a podcast of my own called Ed at Your Best, edu at yourbest.libson.com. 
And that is my own personal radio show for my local central Illinois area, trying to convince folks around us that we do some really great stuff in education. And if we share it a little bit more, we all can do a little bit better. I am at Matthew underscore T underscore more on Twitter. And we do a hashtag flip class chat every week, Monday evenings at 7 p.m., where we get together and talk about uh, flip class to everyone's enjoyment, I hope. I hope so also. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. It's been awesome. Thank you. Make better mistakes. So how was the beer? I don't think it's a bad beer, but I can't say that I enjoyed it. Really? Yeah. Well, it is definitely a coffee stout. The coffee is bold. It smells more like coffee than it does like beer to me. Yeah, it's like a. It struck me like a cold coffee, and so it was another one of those yeah. instances where um, it was it was light enough on the back end, and that's not what I want. I want I want it to be chewy on the back end, and it wasn't. It didn't have that, and so I just I didn't enjoy it as much. I think you're right when you say it's like a cold coffee, and that's not enjoyable. However. It's a cold coffee with alcohol, so that part is enjoyable. Yeah, so I think it's, I think it's a fine beer. I think the the front coffee half is bitter and strong, Very. like I would want in a coffee. Um, it's just I want a little more on the back end. Uh, Jesse Rhodes, if you're listening, thank you for your inquiry. I'm sorry it took me two weeks to get back to you, uh, but I really appreciate, as, as we we're saying, we do really appreciate listener prompts, uh, and uh, it, if you have anything else, please keep asking. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to do this show when all of you are participating. It's been a blast taping this month, responding to all of your questions. So we will see you next month. Until then, discuss research and struggle well.